Hi, and welcome to The Rock's podcast. We are currently going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings. We pray that these sermons encourage your faith. Amen. Okay, well, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings. Of course, Pastor Ross has been taking us through that journey, and so I thought it would be fitting to do a little bit of a review um, about what the Gospel of Mark is All about, Of course, one of the four gospels, one of the four accounts of Jesus' life by eyewitnesses. And Mark's gospel is really about two things. The beginning of the gospel is about who Jesus is. It starts off, this is the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so right in the first verse, the gospel of Mark, Mark tells us this is all about Jesus. And who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. But then he has to spend several chapters... Uh, telling us who this Jesus is. Because if you remember, if you were here on Wednesday night, as we talked about the gospel of Mark before Peter Altamira came and gave uh, a wonderful recitation of the Passion Week, uh, we talked about how the, the beginning of the gospel, when Jesus is doing his miracles and he's proclaiming himself as the son of God, uh, people were confused and they were bewildered, but they were also having their hearts open. Some of them had their hearts even hardened and closed. There was all kinds of reactions. So the first part of the gospel of Mark is all about who Jesus is. Now, remember, the, the Israelites were, were expecting their Messiah, the promised one who would come and set them free and establish uh, God's kingdom on earth. And they thought that that was going to happen in that time to free them from Roman oppression. So Rome was the power then. That was the Roman empire. They, were, um, they had subjected uh, uh, Israel to, to really bondage of that government, the Roman government. And so they were looking for a Messiah who would come and set them free from that political and, and, um, and just the social um, bondage. And so Jesus comes and he is proclaiming that he is the son of God, but he's also proclaiming a different message than what they expected. He's not going to seize power and he's not going to take authority and free Israel from, the, from, the, from really Roman captivity. He's not going to do that. And so that brought a lot of confusion to people because from their traditions, even though, even though the, the Old Testament proclaimed that this Messiah in a mysterious way was going to come and he was actually going to suffer, there was an element of him, uh, of him suffering, but there was also an element of him having authority. Well, they didn't like the suffering part, so they just, they just clung on to the authority part and the overthrowing of other nations and establishing God's kingdom on earth. And so Jesus came, and though he was doing things that only the Messiah could do, he was also proclaiming a different message than what they had expected. And in the middle of the Gospel of Mark, there's this turning point where Jesus actually says to his disciples, well, first he says, who do you say that I am? Which is, by the way, one, probably the most important question that has ever been asked. Who do you say Jesus is? And Peter got it right when he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you are right. And he said, and the son of, the son of God is going to be handed over to the chief priests and the elders. He's going to be crucified and put to death. 
And then they stopped listening when he said, but three days later, he will rise from the dead. And that's the turning point of the gospel of Mark. So then from there, who is Jesus? In the first eight chapters, we, we begin to see how Jesus becomes the Messiah. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, and in their minds, he's supposed to overthrow Rome, then how does he actually become the Messiah and do that? How does he fulfill both what he's saying, that the Messiah was going to suffer and die, and also fulfill what the Old Testament said about him taking authority and freeing uh, Rome from the oppression of the nations around them? Well, that's the context of the Gospel of Mark. And so through that through that journey that Jesus leads us through of, of, of teaching and doing miracles, he comes to the point where he actually, the promise is fulfilled that he would be handed over to the chief priests. And last week, again, we heard the walk through the Passion Week and it culminated in the death and burial of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's where we pick up this morning. We're gonna pick up in Mark chapter 15 and verse 42. And this is where Peter Altamira ended in this passage when he, when he recited it for us on Wednesday night. But we're going to kind of overlap and pick up there before we get to the empty tomb. So let's look at Mark chapter 15 and verse 42. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. We're going to pause there and consider the first point, which is a buried hope. The hope of the world, the hope come from heaven. So he had been proclaiming, now dead and gone and buried. Jesus is crucified and dead. Well, it was preparation day. Preparation day um, is not to be confused with uh, tax preparation day, which is coming up. <laughs> preparation day was the day before the Sabbath or any, any special fest, uh, festival. And uh, the reason it was called preparation day is because you couldn't do any work on the Sabbath. So you basically had to do all the work for the Sabbath the day before the Sabbath. So you had to do really twice the work. And so the days, the way that they figured the days was not morning to evening. It was from sunset to sunset the next day was a day in the Jewish mind. And so because it was preparation day and they were about to go into the Sabbath, they had to do quick work at getting Jesus' body down and in to the tomb. So they had lots of work to do. So Joseph of Arimathea, he comes on the scene. He was a member of the Jewish high council. That's like the Supreme Court. That was probably the Sanhedrin of, of the Jewish nation. So even though they were ruled by Rome, they still had some authority in terms of their own people. And that authority was held by the high council. Um, and Joseph of Arimathea was on that council. Now, most of the council, of course, was, uh, you know, rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But there were some in the council who 
were hearing what he was teaching, seeing what he was do and doing, and through common sense, applied faith to what they were, what they were hearing and seeing and believed. And, and Joseph was one of those men. So he believed in the promises of God. He was waiting for the kingdom of God, which tells us that he believed God's promises. God's promises that he would one day send a Messiah. God's promises that this Messiah would do things that only God could do. And of course, that's what Jesus was doing. And Joseph saw that and he applied what he saw with faith. And even though he was kind of stuck in this hard place of all of his peers and and all the other council members rejecting Jesus, hating him, being jealous of him, he in his heart was turning to Jesus in faith. And the gospel of John tells us that he became a follower of Jesus, but he did this in secret because he was still afraid of his friends on the council. Now he was buddies with Nicodemus. We also find this in the gospel of John. Nicodemus had visited Jesus at night asking him questions. And this is where we get Nick at night. That's where that originated from. <laughs> they invented it there. So Joseph, Joseph and Nicodemus, they were, they were both prominent Jewish leaders. And they're two of the guys that we know about that, um, that unlike the, the rest of their peers, actually turned to Jesus in faith and began to believe in him and have these questions. And, and even though they had this presupposition that, that the Messiah was going to overthrow Rome, they couldn't help but respond to the things that they were seeing and hearing. And so Joseph and Nicodemus go to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea, and they ask for Jesus' body. Now, Pontius Pilate's another interesting character. He was kind of between a rock and a hard place. He didn't want Jesus to be crucified. He didn't find anything wrong with Jesus. When he interrogated him, he didn't, he didn't have anything really to accuse him of, but the Jewish leaders were so adamant that Jesus be crucified that he was kind of stuck between uh, fulfilling their desires and also fulfilling his role as a, as a Roman prefect. You see, the Jews were notorious for rebelling against Rome, and there was always these uprisings that were taking place, and that would get back to Caesar, and Caesar said, I'm going to put somebody in place who's going to stop that, and do whatever you need to do. I don't want to hear about another uprising. So Pontius Pilate was in this place where he had to respond to what the Jews were saying. He didn't want to crucify Jesus necessarily. I mean, he didn't really care about Jesus. He was just trying to be fair in that situation. And he didn't really like the Jews, so he didn't want to listen to the religious leaders. And they said he must be crucified. And Pontius, Pontius Pilate was like, I don't see anything wrong with this man. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Now, he's stuck because he can either deny and not give the, the, the Jews their wish for Jesus to be crucified. And then an uprising will occur. And then he'll have to hear from Caesar because he's allowed that to happen again. Or he can what he, do what he did, which was to wash his hands of the guilt, you know, so to speak, of Jesus and hand, them, hand him over to the Jews to be crucified. See, the Romans, they were in charge of capital punishment. The Jews weren't legally able to, to um, execute anybody because the Romans took that authority upon themselves. And so the Jews had to come to Rome or to the Romans or to Pontius Pilate in order to have somebody crucified. So here's Pontius Pilate. He's in this place of not really knowing what to do, but he did the deed and he handed Jesus over to the Jews to be crucified. 
and he had him, he had him crucified. But now Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they want to come and take Jesus' body and give him a proper burial. They don't want his body to just go into the trash heap like all of the prisoners or criminals that were executed. Um, that, was the, that was their fate, you know, was to just be thrown into the trash heap or left out and exposed for the wild animals to consume. And so because of the things that they heard and saw in Jesus, they didn't want that to happen to them. So to him, so they came and asked Pontius Pilate for his body. Now, before Pilate was going to give him, give Joseph the body, he wanted to make sure Jesus was actually dead. And so he waits for the centurion to come and to confirm this. And this brings up a question that I think the Bible and history uh, readily answers for us. This is a question in people's minds today even. Was Jesus dead? See, in order to have a resurrected body, in order to have somebody who is risen from the dead, uh, you have to make sure that the body is dead first. Was Jesus resuscitated? Did Jesus just have, just be, was he just revived and, and he just came back to life? He wasn't really dead because this is a miracle if he rose from the dead, but, but maybe we can bypass the miracle and find another way for him to actually have been alive, either being resuscitated or being revived. Well, let's take a look at that for a moment. Was Jesus dead? Well, let's think about, first of all, what we know um, from history uh, about the way that the Romans proceeded in their execution. First, they would scourge the criminals, their, the, the, those that were you know, destined to be executed. Um, they would be scourged. With a cat of nine tails, they would get... Uh, 40 lashes minus one, they called it 39 lashes. It was kind of the number of mercy. It doesn't sound very merciful, but I guess one less is a little helpful. And they would, they would scourge their victims, sometimes so bad that just the loss of blood and the brutality of that beating would cause the, the, the victim to die just in that process. They didn't even make it to the cross sometimes, which the Roman soldiers probably wanted that to happen because it was a lot of work for them to drag a body and a cross out uh, and onto the roadside and you know, put the criminal up. So if we can do away with them here, that's gonna save us some work. We can go home to dinner. And so that's what they did. They, they beat their criminals ruthlessly and it was no exception for Jesus. Jesus faced the scourging. His flesh was torn apart and as the scripture says, and for the scripture to be fulfilled, Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, um, that his body was broken for our transgressions. And so Jesus was scourged, and just that act alone could have caused death. But if that wasn't enough, then crucifixion would come. So crucifixion was, a, was invented by the Assyrians somewhere around 400 uh, BC, and then the Romans took that form of capital punishment, and they mastered it into um, this, the, just this brutal, uh, painful way to really display their power and authority. They would set up criminals on the roadside uh, on crucifixes to warn everybody, hey, if you mess with Rome, this is what you have coming to you. This is what's going to happen to all those who try to upset the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, right? Pretty ironic, and so you would be walking down the roadside and you would just see naked and beaten bodies hanging from crosses as a symbol of the authority and the power of Rome. And again, this is what happened to Jesus, of course. He was 
crucified. This was a Roman mastered form of capital punishment, a slow, painful death. In fact, the word excruciating uh, that we use commonly, excruciating, it literally means out of the cross. When I learned that, I, I stopped using that word at least you know, as frequently as I think I had in the past because I can't imagine anything as excruciating as crucifixion. Crucifixion would, would kill you ultimately if you, if you didn't die from the blood loss and the scourging and just the exposure and you know, the, the uh, exhaustion that it took to get to that point. Ultimately, it would kill you by asphyxiation, suffocation. So they drive the, the nails through your wrists, through your hands, the nails through your feet, and you would hang from the cross. And as you're hanging there, your lungs would be expanded so you wouldn't be able to take a breath. So you'd have to pull yourself up against the nails and against the rough wood of the cross, your back bloodied from the scourging. Pull yourself up and take a breath and then let yourself down. And eventually you would grow weary and exhausted and too tired to pull yourself up and you would eventually suffocate. That was the means that the Romans used to execute criminals their victims. If you weren't, you know, if they had to, if they had to hurry and you weren't, uh, you weren't suffocating quick enough, then they would take a mallet and they would break the leg so that you couldn't push yourself up to take a breath. And eventually you would suffocate that way. Of course, Jesus, Jesus did not have his legs broken. Instead, um, he had a spear run into his side that punctured the sack around his heart. And, um, but even before that, he had given up his life. And Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I laid down my life. And as I mentioned, he said, I have the authority to lay it down and I have the authority to take it up again. So he was already dead when the spear went into his side, but you know, they wanted to be sure. Finally, the Romans were experts at execution. It was their job. They were executioners, the ones that oversaw the crucifixions. It was their job to make sure that the victim was dead and the deed was done. Their lives depended on that. Their lives depended on taking other lives. See, if, they, if somehow a criminal uh, or a victim somehow didn't die and got free, then they would have to suffer the same fate that the criminal was, uh, was you know, penalized with. And so to spare and to preserve their own lives, they would make sure that their victims were dead. They were experts at this. And so Jesus' body, Pilate asks, is he dead? I'm surprised he's dead already. How did he die already? Well, he gave up his spirit to the Father. Pilate wants to be sure. He doesn't want this thing to last. He doesn't want this ordeal and this whole dynamic with Jesus and his followers and the way that the Jews are responding, he doesn't want that to last anymore. He wants to be free of that. So I need to know for sure. Don't just send a soldier to tell me. Send who, the person who's in charge. Send the centurion to tell me if he's dead. And the centurion confirms this. He's dead. There's no question about it. There's two different words in the Greek that are used for the body of Jesus. When, it, when Joseph goes and asks Pilate for the body, the word that's used there is soma. And soma means, it means really any body, but it particularly means a living body. It could mean a body that's dead, but most times it, it means a, a, living, a living body. 
the word that the centurion uses to tell Pilate that Jesus is dead is not soma, it's toma. And toma means a corpse. It means a lifeless body, a dead body. So there's no question about it. Jesus was dead. So Pilate hears this information. Now he's willing to give Joseph the body of Jesus. He's willing to give Joseph the body of Jesus because again, he knows that Joseph is one of, one of the members of the high council. He doesn't know that, G- that Joseph believes in Jesus. He's probably curious why Joseph wants Jesus' body. But he's glad that a member of the council is asking him because he wouldn't want his disciples to take the body and to pretend that Jesus rose from the dead. So he's glad that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, two Jewish leaders who are among the group that has rejected Jesus, want to take the body. Again, he's free from the problem. Once Jesus is gone, my worries will be over and we can move on. That's Pilate's hope. So Joseph and Nicodemus take Jesus' body. They prepare it for burial and they place Jesus in Joseph's tomb. The Gospel of John tells us that there was a garden tomb nearby the place that Jesus was crucified and that it was Joseph's tomb and it had been prepared and nobody had been laid in it yet. It was a new tomb carved out of the rock and that's where Jesus was laid. It was convenient because, again, the sun was about to set and they were about to enter the Sabbath and they couldn't do any work. They wouldn't have been able to prepare and lay Jesus' body to rest on the Sabbath. So it was convenient that the tomb was near the place of crucifixion. So they hastily wrapped Jesus' body in clean linen and uh, provided spices for his burial, and they put him in the tomb. And it says there in the last verse of that chapter 15 that Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid And Matthew adds that they were sitting there opposite the tomb. And so now hope was buried. The women were sitting there forlorn. The last glimmer of hope disappears as the stone rolls into its place. The weight of the stone equaled by the weight in their heart at what has just taken place. The darkness inside the tomb equaled only by the darkness in their heart because the light has been shut out through the death of their loved one. Just the loss of Jesus himself in their hearts, this man that they they loved so much and cared for, now he's gone. The disciples are scattered. They're kind of nowhere to be found. Each of them thinking about what has gone on and what this means for them. The loss of their dreams, this, this man who did these things that we've never seen before, who claimed to be the Messiah, now he's gone. Loss of their livelihood, they left their jobs, tax collector, fisherman. They left all of that to follow Jesus. So what are they going to do now for their lives? They're guilty by association, Jesus' followers, this so-called sect that had risen up and that they thought they could quench by 
by eliminating its leader. And now, you know, they fear for their lives. There's probably a manhunt that's going to happen. They don't, you know, they know the Romans aren't going to want this thing to spring up again. So they're scared for their lives because of their association with their dead leader. Lost and disillusioned. Just imagine the disciples at this time sitting wherever they were when Jesus was being prepared and laid in the tomb. Just hearts ripped in two. No hope, no future. Have you ever had a great expectation suddenly torn out from underneath you? Maybe promise of a promotion turns into unemployment, waiting in the unemployment line. A serious relationship ends with a shattered heart. Efforts to stay healthy are eclipsed by a serious diagnosis. Close-knit family ravaged by division and, and separation and brokenness. Can you imagine what it must have felt like to lose the only the only one, the one who convinced you that he was the only hope for Israel and all of humanity. Can you imagine the women sitting there watching their dreams and their hopes be, be closed and never reopened in front of their eyes? The year before I came to know Jesus was probably the what was definitely the hardest year of my life. Early, earlier in the year, um, my girlfriend at the time, who'd gotten pregnant, uh, gave birth to our son, and we placed him for adoption. And I was in the hospital with him for three days while we were waiting for the adoptive parents to come, holding him. I had wanted her to terminate the pregnancy uh, because I just wanted to be out of the situation. I'm so thankful that she didn't. But then I was sitting there with him in my arms, waiting for the adoptive parents to come, holding him, feeling guilty, first of all, that I had wanted him dead. And secondly, that now that he was alive and he was here, I was just giving him to another family. A few months later, while I was still reeling from the grief of that, my older brother believed a lie and took his own life. A few months later, the girl that I, another girlfriend that I had um, after uh, my son was born, I thought I was going to marry her and she couldn't handle, you know, being around somebody who was so depressed and broken because of all that had gone on and so she said goodbye. And so that year, 2004, 13 years ago, just riddled with brokenness, despair, grief, guilt, sin, and shame. Jesus was a dead man to me. I didn't know Jesus, but when I thought about him, I certainly didn't think about somebody who was a risen savior, a conquering king. I just thought it was some man who lived and died many years ago, has nothing to do with me. I have no hope. Jesus is as good as dead, just like to the women and the disciples after Jesus was crucified and buried. 
He's gone. He's dead. He's buried. He's never coming back. All hope is lost. All hope has been buried with the one who was believed to be our rescuer. Now he's gone. But thank God that the story does not end there and there's more to be told and that Jesus does emerge from the darkness into our hopeless hearts and bring the light of life. And so let's look at the first few verses of chapter 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices, bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. So now a strange turn of events. The ladies went home for the night that day that Jesus was laid in the tomb. The Sabbath is coming. It's time to go home. There's nothing else that can be done. No work that can be done. Why would you want to do any work anyways? All hope is lost. What's the point of life now? Jesus was laid to rest. Just like he had rested from creation on the seventh day, he now rested from his atoning sacrificial work on the cross. Six days he labored during creation week, the scripture tells us, and six days he labored during Passion Week. And now he was about to begin the process of making all things new. But could you imagine what that Sabbath day must have been like for the disciples and for the women? Luke tells us that the ladies obeyed the command to rest. Of course, on the Sabbath day, the command and, and then, of course, the traditions that were, that were supplementing that command uh, were that you could do no work, you couldn't do anything on the Sabbath day. You would have to rest. That's why you had to do everything on the day of preparation, the day before. And so they were obeying the command. They were resting. But you know that there was no true rest taking place. I mean, how can you rest after you had experienced something as traumatic as that, the crucifixion of your Lord. And so their hearts were heavy with grief. Their beds were wet with tears. All they could think about was their Jesus laying on a cold stone slate. And so they set their hearts on the only thing left to do. 
Out of their love for Jesus, they set their hearts to tend to the body of their hastily entombed friend. I imagine them sitting there watching the clock, you know, they didn't really have a clock, so sundial maybe. <laughs> watching the sun, you know, until sunset. And then the Sabbath was over. Immediately, you know, when the Sabbath ends, they go to the market. They buy more spices. They prepared the spices and they headed out for Jesus' tomb at first light. And as they approached the tomb, they basically asked each other, which one of you ate your Wheaties this morning? Because we have a huge stone to roll away and I don't know how we're going to do it. Not to mention that the gospel of Matthew tells us that there was a guard posted at the tomb, a Roman seal laid on the tomb so that nobody could open the tomb and try to take the body of Jesus and then cause a, what they called a greater deception than the previous one that, that the son of God had visited them and, but now he's risen from the dead. That would be a big scandal. So they set a guard there to guard the tomb. So now you have a Roman guard, you have a Roman seal on the tomb, which basically says, touch this and die. How are the ladies going to roll the stone away? But in their love and their devotion for the Lord, they want to find a way. And isn't it interesting that when we set our hearts on honoring the Lord, oftentimes on our way to do that, he removes the obstacles from before us. They saw that the stone had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they were alarmed by an angel. Luke and John tell us that there were actually two angels. And these angels got to announce the greatest surprise party ever. Can you imagine? Surprise! (laughs) April Fool's. The customer you are trying to reach is no longer available. Please try your call again later. Goodbye. There's no dead guy here. Luke tells us that the angel said, why do you look for the living among the dead? Don't be alarmed, they said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. That's who they were looking for, the dead crucified Jesus. And this was the right tomb, but Jesus was nowhere to be found. And they said, As I mentioned before, the three most glorious words ever uttered, he has risen. He is not here. See for yourself. Look at the place where they laid him. And he says, now go tell his disciples and Peter. Matthew adds, tell him that he has risen from the dead and he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. It's very interesting that the women were commissioned as apostles to the apostles. Apostle just means sent one. Go and tell people about me. And so the, uh, the disciples weren't there to hear for themselves, to see for themselves. And so the women had the privilege of hearing the announcements and actually witnessing the first encounter uh, with Jesus and the resurrection, the other gospels tells, uh, tell us. And so they were sent to the ones that Jesus wanted to send into the world. They were the apostles to the apostles. Go and tell the apostles, go and tell the disciples the good news. Now, they ran away and they were terrified. It says that they didn't tell anybody. We take that to mean that on their way to the disciples, they didn't stop and bother to tell anybody, hey, we were just at Jesus' tomb, you know? He, he was the guy that was crucified the other night and uh, the other day, and uh, he's not there. Uh, 
you don't happen to know anything about that. Nope, they weren't going to do that. They were terrified. They just ran. Can you imagine the feeling as they're running from the tomb to wherever the disciples were? What is going on here? Having not yet encountered the risen Lord, but hearing from an angel that he had been risen and he wasn't there. His body was nowhere to be found. So they ran away terrified, bewildered, one of the gospels tells us, but afraid and filled with joy. And so they go and they tell the other disciples, and of course the disciples didn't believe them. They thought, this is a bunch of nonsense. Why are you coming and telling us this? Is this some kind of joke? This is cruel. Are you guys out of your mind? Are you delusioned? But Peter and John ran to the tomb to see for themselves. And they saw in the tomb the strips of linen, the head covering neatly folded by housekeeping, the angel there. Jesus' body was nowhere to be found. The angels had announced his resurrection. John saw and believed, although he still didn't understand the scripture that Jesus would raise from the dead. He just believed. He must, he, I don't know how this happened, but he must have come back from the dead. Peter went away scratching his head, wondering to himself what had happened. Now, of course, Jesus sub subsequently appears. He appears to the women and, and the disciples and on several occasions. But I want to pause here. I want to pause at the empty tomb. Because the main question is, what have you done with the empty tomb? Or perhaps, if you haven't thought about it, what will you do with the empty tomb? Really, what will you do with a resurrected Savior? Because that's what the empty tomb represents. It's very interesting, you know, 94 of us went to Israel. I went in 2013, so I had the opportunity to see the garden tomb. And it's just amazing that so many people go there to see this hole in a rock. That's all that it is. Think about all the other holy sites, all the burial places where the bodies are still entombed and people go there to worship and, and to honor and they feel close to God or close to that patriarch or matriarch or whoever it is that's entombed there. The garden tomb, it's just a hole in a wall. But so many people go there because it means something so much more. It means this, hole in the, this empty hole in the wall means so much more than all the tombs in the world that could ever be visited. The empty tomb represents a resurrected savior. When I was coming to faith, when I was wrestling with the reality of God, who at the time, 13 years ago, was just an abstract concept to me. I had gone from growing up as a nominal Christian, probably calling myself a Christian, to becoming an agnostic and then an atheist. And so at 23 years old, you guys have heard the story, I went to church, invited by a friend. My life was in shambles after that hard year. And I knew I needed something. But I wasn't just going to have the wool pulled over my eyes. I wasn't just going to believe in something because it would make me feel better or would help me. I, need to knew, I needed to know that it was true. Well, the resurrection was one of the things that as I was being drawn by the love of the people and the truth of God's word, intellectually, 
the resurrection was something that provided this evidence. What's the difference between Christianity and the hope that Christians have versus all the other religions in the world? What's the difference between you know, what everybody else believes and what you believe? How can you be so sure that this book is true and that God has actually communicated to us through it and provided a witness of himself here? How can you be so sure of these things? Well, of course, I found a lot of reasons why we could be sure, but one of the main ones was the resurrection. The evidence for the resurrection. Let's look at just a few of the evidences for the resurrection. Appearances. The Bible tells us that he appeared to Mary Magdalene, to the women, to Peter, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, to the disciples except Thomas, and then to the disciples including Thomas, to the seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee, to over 500 believers, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians. He says, hey, if you don't believe me, just ask the 500 other people who saw him. And by the way, half of them, at least half of them are still alive, which means there was at least 251 people that you could go to and say, hey, he said that you saw Jesus. Did you really see Jesus? And they would say yes to James and to the disciples on the Mount of Olives when he ascended into heaven. And somebody might say, well, that's, you know, that's all nice, but that all comes from the Bible. It's like circular reasoning. Why would you, why would you, you know, take what the Bible says about the resurrection and use that as evidence? That seems like circular reasoning. Well, there's more. There's a lot more, actually, but just a few things. Evidence for the resurrection continued. The attempted cover-up. As I mentioned before in Matthew, uh, they tell us that there was a guard that was posted at the tomb to make sure that the disciples didn't come and steal the body of Jesus and then fabricate this legend that Jesus had risen from the dead. So these guards were posted at the tomb and Matthew goes on to tell us that an angel comes and rolls back the stone. The guards shook and they became like dead men. Later, the guards went and reported these things to the chief priests and the elders and the chief priests and elders didn't know what to do with it. So they had a little huddle and they decided we... There's nothing we can do. How could this happen? But we can't get, let this get out. So let's bribe the guards, pay them to tell them, hey, say that you fell asleep. Yeah, all of you fell asleep at the same time. And somehow you weren't woken up when the disciples came. And somehow they were able to roll the stone back. And somehow you know it was the disciples, even though you were asleep. How would you know it was them? They had to think of a quick lie. And the problem is, the problem for the Sanhedrin is that the truth always justifies itself. But lies always have to be covered up by other lies. And so there was an attempted cover-up. Jesus' body was gone. Okay, again, this is from the scripture. So let's go on. Enemies of Jesus become believers after Jesus died. These next two are the ones that are really powerful to me. You have Saul of Tarsus, who was probably around, who definitely was around during Jesus' life and ministry, who witnessed the things that Jesus said and did and who rejected Jesus just like the other religious leaders. And then after Jesus was crucified, that wasn't enough for him, so he started going after other Christians. He was getting arrest warrants to go and take these other Christians that were destroying Judaism, this, this sect, this cult that was rising up to destroy it, he would go out and eliminate and execute, have the 
followers, Jesus' followers, executed. And so he was there at, at Stephen's death, one of the first martyrs. Stephen proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus and he consented, kill this man, stone this man to death. And he held the tunics of those, the jackets of those who were putting him to death. And so he did not believe in Jesus all the way through Jesus' death and even after that as his disciples were scattering all over the place. And in Acts chapter nine, we read that this man came to faith in Christ. It's kind of odd to me that somebody who hated Jesus and his followers even after Jesus died, all of a sudden would come to faith in Christ and become one of the most powerful witnesses of Jesus' ministry and ultimately his resurrection. And how about Jesus' brothers, James and Dude, Jude? He was a dude named Jude. <laughs> James and Dude, those two dudes. In John chapter seven, we're told that Jesus' brothers mocked and ridiculed Jesus because they didn't believe in him. They said, hey, why don't you go show yourself? Why don't you go put on your little show? Go reveal yourself to everybody. And Jesus basically said, you guys don't understand God's plan. And they didn't believe in Jesus. Church history tells us that they came to faith after, Christ had, after Jesus had died. If you grew up with somebody and they were telling you that they were the son of God and they were proving it, but somehow you were jealous or just hard-hearted or closed-minded and you couldn't see it happening, and then they died, maybe you would have some grief and say, oh, okay, you know, at the eulogy, maybe he really was who he said he was. You wouldn't say that if he said that he was, going, if he was the son of God and the savior of the world and he was going to rule and reign, and then he died. You wouldn't say that at his memorial service, at his eulogy. And so they continued in unbelief until somehow they became believers. What, why would they go from unbelief to belief? Unless they had seen the risen Lord, just as we saw in the appearances, he appeared, he appeared to, well, he appeared to James, that was the disciple, but he appeared to his brothers as well. And then we have the books testifying of that in the Bible, both James and Jude, half-brothers of Jesus, bearing witness to the truth of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And then the one that really gets me, disciples go to death proclaiming the resurrection. All of them, except for John, died proclaiming the resurrection. And even John, they tried to throw into a vat of oil and somehow, somehow he miraculously climbed out of that, you know, can ask for a towel. Can, I, can you get somebody, get somebody get me a towel, you know? Kind of warm here. Uh, and so they couldn't kill him, so they exiled him to an island where he could write some more awesome books. But all the disciples were put to death proclaiming the risen Savior. Now, here's the thing. And somebody said this before. Well, lots of people die for something that they believe in. It's true. Lots of people do die for something they believe in. But nobody in their right mind is going to die for something they know is a lie. In other words, the disciples saw Jesus taken, arrested. Some of them saw him crucified. They all knew he was crucified. They all knew he was buried. He's dead. He's gone. And they hired like little, you know, scared cowards, which is reasonable after something like that would happen. They all huddle and hide, fear for their lives. And then somehow from that huddle, they, they find the strength within themselves to say, you know what, actually, it's going to be boring just hiding in here the rest of our lives. Let's come up, let's come up with a plan and tell the world that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Even though we can't get his body, that's fine because the guards will, 
we'll lie about it that we did take it. So maybe we can exploit that a little bit. And let's just go for it. This will be the biggest hoax in all of history. What do we got to lose? They're going to kill us anyways. Let's just, let's just tell everybody, all 11 of us and all the other disciples who witnessed it, let's just tell everybody that he actually rose from the dead. And don't ever give up the secret that he didn't. Go to your death with that secret. No way. That would not happen. You do not die for something that you know is a lie. As soon as the sword was put at the neck, he would say, okay, I made it up. I, I'm kidding, Jesus, he didn't rise from the dead. But all of them went to their death, proclaiming their resurrection. They could have recanted. They could have said, no, no, I, I made it up. I lied. But they didn't because they knew that it was true. The disciples go to the death proclaiming the resurrection. No one dies for what they know is a lie. One writer said this, one of the great foundation stones, unshakable and unmovable of our Christian faith is the historic evidence for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here you and I can stand and do battle for the faith because we have a situation which cannot be contradicted. It can be denied, but it cannot be disproved. Of course, there's more evidence, you know, not to mention that thousands of Jews who had always held to the tradition of worshiping God on Saturday suddenly worshiped him on Sunday after thousands of years. But that wasn't just indicative of a social change. That was indicative of a life change. And that's perhaps one of the greatest evidences of the resurrection is that it transforms lives. As I mentioned, the resurrection was a big ticket item for me. Prophecy and the resurrection, the two big ticket items. If God is true, he should be able to foretell the future and then the future should come true and he should be right 100% of the time. And if you look at scripture, all the things that should have been fulfilled were fulfilled and now we're waiting for the things that are yet to be fulfilled. And of course, the, the resurrection, a big part of that. It's true. It's the big ticket item. The Apostle Paul says, let's just take one thing about Christianity and put that up on the poster board and, and just look at it for a second. If it's true that Christ, well, let me start with this. If it's not true that Christ has risen from the dead, then we are the scum of the earth. We are deceived. We're not only deceived, but we're deceivers because... We're spending the rest of our life proclaiming this message. And we're to be pitied above all men because we believe in this, this dumb little lie. But he says, but indeed Christ is risen. And if he is risen, then what kind of implication does that have on our lives? And as I heard this message when I was coming to faith and when I was struggling and wrestling with the Lord, coming out of my hour of darkness. Hearing this message and thinking about these things. I don't remember exactly when I, when I came to faith, but I remember sitting in a stoplight at Occidental and Fulton, right there by Santa Rosa Alliance Church, in my truck, listening to country music, just sitting there, minding my own business, not really thinking about much, but having these things floating around in my mind. And all of a sudden, I just realized, I believe. I believe this. This is, this is true. God is real. 
Christ has died for my sins. And better yet, he's risen from the dead to prove that we have victory over sin and death. And that's the invitation he gives you as well. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful, God, for your great love. Oh, Lord Jesus, that you would bear the scorn and the shame, the ridicule from your creation and the, and the suffering and the painful, lonely death on the cross for us. God, that you would lay down your life for us when we didn't deserve it. As your enemies, as your word says, sure, somebody might die for a, a good person or a righteous man, but you demonstrated your love toward us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, I don't deserve that. <laughs> Not the things that I've done, the person that I've been. But Lord, you are so faithful and good. Thank you, Lord, for living the life that I could never live and paying my penalty on the cross and dying the death that I deserve. Thank you, Lord, for being so faithful. And God, thank you for proving that you had victory over sin and death by conquering the grave. And thank you for the invitation, the simple invitation. Just follow me. I know the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You're so good, God. Help us to turn to you and to follow you, Lord. May you be exalted in our lives. And Lord, may we praise you for all that you have done, for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.